0: Well, hello, Grace Family. Uh, before we dive into the message, can I just say this really briefly? I love you guys. <laughs> I don't know if I say that enough. I love you. Uh, it has been such a challenging season, hasn't it? We've been going through a lot uh, through this pandemic, through all the the stuff that's been going on in the national discourse. I mean, it's it's a crazy time, and um, I gotta say, I mean, having this be my first few months as senior pastor, it's a you know, it's a it's intense. It's a lot, but. Um, consistently, I mean, from the vast, vast majority of the interactions I've had with you guys, whether online or through email or occasionally seeing you guys at different grace events, I have ex- I have experienced nothing but absolute uh, grace and love and passion. I-, I hear you talking about how God continues to work in your lives. And um, I just got to say, I'm, s- I'm so encouraged, even in the midst of some really hard stuff that you guys, uh, um, you are the church. You're doing an amazing job at being the church in a, in a, very unprecedented time. So I love you. Thank you for being Grace Church. I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else right now. Okay, so let's dive into the message because today we are going to conclude or, or wrap up our series, Didn't See That Coming, which has been, um, I think, really interesting and, and fascinating looking at some of the prophetic words of Isaiah in Isaiah 40 through 55. As we've covered so far, maybe you're just joining us for this week, these passages that we've been looking at, um, they were originally written for the Israelites during a, a specific time in their lives when they had hit rock bottom. They were in exile in Babylon. Um, it was uh, an awful and humiliating time for them. They had lost their national pride. They'd lost their temple. They'd lost their, their spiritual reality. It was like their whole world got turned upside down. And frankly, they were starting to wonder if God, if, if Yahweh, had abandoned them, or, or where was he? What was he up to? Obviously, you can see uh, there's some similarities that we wanted to tap into because our world has been turned upside down too. So in that context uh, of the Babylonian exile, the prophet Isaiah had a very singular message for the people. It was a very clear one, and it was this. God is still working. We've been saying that every single week in this series. God is still working, although not in the ways we might expect. And that's where we got the title. I didn't see that coming. Last week, I introduced a character, a character who shows up in this portion of Isaiah a few different times, the so-called servant of God, servant of God. Now, there are four prophecies in this section of the book that are all about this servant. And as you read them, as you read these poems, you start to see some similarities uh, that describe this, this person. First of all, this servant is kind of the exact opposite of what we would think is someone who's going to be the servant of the God of the universe. Uh, Instead of power and might and, and majesty, this servant is humble and gentle and peaceful and quiet. In a world filled with powerful people, this servant is kind of a nobody. Kind of a nobody. And, and throughout these four, what they're sometimes called servant songs, through these four servant songs, this servant faces humiliation and, and uh, rejection as humanity pretty much despises him. So that's another, another thing that makes, uh, makes this servant so unique, that despite all of this rejection, the servant stays true to his mission, uh, stays faithful to this idea of bringing God's justice into the world. God's justice, which uh, as I I talked about last week, is kind of shorthand for saying that uh, justice is God's intentions for humanity coming to fruition. The world being made right. God's mishpat, God's justice. Healing, uh, peace, freedom, abundance, harmony. That's all that's wrapped up in this idea of God's justice. It's a return to Eden. So the first servant song talks about him and says this, he will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the earth. So this servant is steadfast, even in the midst of all this this rejection. In other words, by, by giving his life to God's justice, this servant, this humble rejected nobody, ultimately is successful in his mission. God's justice does prevail through him. Just again, not in the way that we might expect. Now, as I talked about last week, w- when you look at this servant, uh, one person rises to the top as a pretty obvious fulfillment of these prophecies, and it's Jesus. Jesus is, is the perfect example of this suffering servant. When we think about Jesus on the cross, his sacrifice, the, the life that he lived, it is obvious that he is the quintessential servant of God. Okay, He is the fulfillment of these prophecies. But But as I made the point last week, when you consider the original context of these passages of Scripture, you realize that in some ways, these poems don't just describe a servant of God. They also kind of describe any servant of God, including you and including me. I know that sounds a little weird and provocative, but but if we dedicate our lives to God's justice, like this servant, if we are committed to healing the world in Jesus' name, well, then we are going to face some of the same challenges and rejections that he did, that this servant did, that Jesus did. As the Apostle Paul put it, we are going to share in the sufferings of Christ. All that to say, as we meditate on these servant songs in Isaiah, we can listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, not just giving us insight into our savior, but also speaking to us about how our own lives might look as we try to heal this very broken world in his name. So today, uh, we kinda last week set up all the big picture ideas. Today, I want us to zero in on the fourth servant song. It's probably the one that you're most familiar with if you've ever heard these. But I'm hoping that with this new context in our mind, for sort of the broader way of looking at these passages, I'm hoping that as we look at these poems, we are going to come away with some fresh insights on these words. So let's turn to Isaiah 52, verse 13, and we'll start to read this fourth servant song. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But... Many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he hardly seemed human. And from his appearance, one would, one would scarcely know that he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Okay, we'll stop right there. Yet again right off the bat uh, just like last week we see this this odd concept of the servant of God the one who's working for God the God of the universe remember being rejected by humanity that doesn't seem to, to add up why would the why would God's servant be rejected verse 15 says he will startle many nations in other words he's not just rejected by Israel he's not just uh, despised by by the people of God he's He's rejected by the world, by all of humanity. I love uh, some of the poetic imagery that we read in this this, this passage. For example, look at verse number two. Verse two, Uh, it says, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. Nothing nothing beautiful about him, nothing majestic, right? Okay, so what does that mean? What, What was Isaiah getting at there? Well, remember, uh, we talk a lot about the world behind the text here at Grace. When we are looking at a passage, we want to talk about what was going on uh, in the world for the people who first heard these words. And as we know, uh, that time period, people lived in agrarian societies. They were, they were you know, they, farmers. They, they were used to ideas about crops and trees. And, and so this kind of imagery would speak to them. And uh, here's what I think it would have said. Uh, sometimes trees, if, if you know anything about trees, when they're getting older or when they're they're trying to respond to some kind of injury, they will grow what's called a sucker, okay? A sucker. It's, it's a new branch that kind of comes out of nowhere. They, they can even grow out of the stump of a fallen tree, this little new little branch as the tree is trying to grow, which is actually really cool uh, from a scientific perspective. I think it's really, really fascinating. But if you're trying to to prune a tree or, or keep a tree nice and tidy or, or have it producing just fruit and not a bunch of extra branches, suckers can be kind of annoying. Um, on my farm, there are a bunch of these really huge and old catalpa trees. Uh, the people who lived there before us or maybe the people who lived there before them, they were all about catalpa trees because they are everywhere and now they're gigantic. We're talking like massive. And they've got these Huge funky branches and these huge leaves and, and they grow suckers like crazy like they're just these like living machines they're constantly shooting out suckers. Um, well, I recently was pruning one of these catalpa branches. Uh, there was a, a low branch. It was kind of an overgrown area, so I took out this branch and uh, I came back like, I don't know, a month later, and right, right off the bat, there was a five-foot-tall sucker growing this whole new branch, this whole new little mini tree growing out of the area that I had cut. So I cut that off because I, I, again, was trying to clear out this area, and this is what came back. Ever since, like we're talking two weeks ago, all of these new suckers are growing out of the part that I had cut off. It's crazy. It's crazy. And that, that image right there of those annoying little suckers That is how humanity is viewing this servant of God, this tender green shoot, an unwanted, unexpected, insignificant nuisance, right? That's the picture that Isaiah is painting here with this imagery. But this is why, have I mentioned I love the Bible? This is where it gets really cool because there's a whole other layer to this imagery of this tender green shoot, This is where the world of the text comes in, where we talk about how this passage connects to other passages and how the imagery speaks to other biblical imagery. If you go back uh, to Isaiah 11, now this was a prophecy way before the Babylonian exile. When you go back to that, uh, there's another prophecy about a young branch. Actually, it's about a sucker. Uh, So listen to this prophecy, Isaiah 11. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot a sucker yes a new branch bearing fruit from the old root and the spirit of the lord will rest on him now when you see that prophecy david's family that that's code for the line of kings of israel this new branch, according to Isaiah 11, is, is one from that family who is going to bring God's justice to the world. Uh, go read that passage sometime. If you've heard that phrase, uh, you know, the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, that's where it comes from. So go check that out later. But, but this is a, a, a person in the line of David who's going to bring God's justice to the world. But when you read Isaiah 11, it says that this branch is growing out of a stump. What does that mean? It means that that the tree of Israel's kings had fallen. It was destroyed, all but dead, right? Hope for Israel's restoration was going to come from this humble little sucker that was growing up out of the stump. So when you take these two prophecies and you take these two layers of meaning and you put them together in Isaiah 53, here's what you find. Here's what you find. This unwanted sucker, this new growth, from this fallen tree of Israel, is actually bringing God's purposes to fruition. You see that that the prophet here, Isaiah, is suggesting that through this servant of God, Yahweh is working to fulfill his purposes. Ultimately, you know, he's going to restore his people Israel. He's going to heal this world. Even in the midst of the Babylonian exile, this tree of Israel will bear fruit no matter what. But, It's going to happen through this tiny green shoot, which everyone else sees as just this unwanted sprout. Verse 3 we turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. You see, God's restoration, God's healing was on the move. We just didn't see it coming. That's what Isaiah is suggesting here. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that powerful? So keep that image in your mind. I want to continue continue reading because there's more to this whole prophecy of this suffering servant. Let's read what happens next. Starting in verse four. Yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought that his troubles were a punishment from God, a, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Okay, so it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. Now, in the ancient world, saying something like that was a pretty provocative idea because uh, back then, especially back in ancient Israel, there's a pretty common mentality that you kind of got what was coming to you. If you were suffering in some way, if you were suffering from disease or hardship or something like that, well, then you must have done something to deserve it. Surely you must have sinned or made God unhappy somehow for for this kind of suffering to, to happen. That's why it says, you know, we thought his troubles were a punishment from God because it just makes sense. But here, with this servant, that's not the case. Now this servant who is being pierced and crushed and beaten and whipped, he does not deserve it. Not at all. In fact, not only does he not deserve it, but we do. We do. Look at verse six. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. So he's bearing what we deserve. What this servant is experiencing here is the consequences of our rebellion, we rebel and he pays the price kind of like um, the picture of Dorian gray have you ever heard of that it's, it's an old novel from like the 1890s and it's this uh, it's this story of a, of a wealthy aristocrat who has this painting made of himself which uh, I guess it looks like him or something like that and then he somehow I, I don't I haven't read it since like middle school but he sells his soul and decide somehow by selling his soul all of what he uh, would normally age or experience goes into that painting while he stays young and beautiful and, and whatever so as the story goes on, He goes off and he just lives this awful life. He's, he's super sinful, he's abusive, he's, he's kind of just a, a gross guy. And this painting ends up taking on all of those effects. He sins and the painting shows that sin and the effects of that sin uh, as, as, you know, as he's supposedly getting older. Now again, Isaiah is basically saying that, that this servant of God... He's like that portrait. (laughs) He's a portrait of us. As we corrupt our lives by sin, like Dorian Gray, he's the one who bears the effects of it. You want to look at what our sin does to somebody? You look at him because he's the one experiencing the consequences. Now, look, obviously, that that prophecy, that whole idea— That's obviously about Jesus because Jesus is the most perfect fulfillment of this passage, of this suffering servant. He's the one who shows us what it even means in the first place to bear the sins of others. As it says in verse 8 and verse 9, he was unjustly condemned. He had done no wrong. He, He never deceived anyone. Jesus was the ultimate suffering servant because he was sinless. He was perfectly in line with God's intentions for the world. And yet he willingly went to death as a result of humanity's sin. He was the ultimate sacrificial lamb, as it says in verse 7. Now, I know that we could probably spend a ton of time getting deep into that aspect of this uh, this prophecy, the whole sacrificial system. Um, I'm not gonna do that today, but here's what I'll tell you. Back in February, when we did our Return to Eden series, all about the law of Moses, I did a whole sermon about the sacrificial system, and I talked specifically about Isaiah 53. So if you wanna know more about the Lamb of God uh, as as a substitute for humanity, please go back and watch that sermon. But for now, I'll just say this. I'll put this simply because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he made it possible for humanity to experience not just forgiveness of our sins, not just, you know, being wiped clean. He actually made it possible for us to experience freedom from the power of sin, the ability to to not live through our sinful nature anymore. That's what the Holy Spirit within us makes possible. Okay, so that's what, the, holy, that's what the, the, the suffering servant experienced and opened the door for us to, to experience. So, yes, Jesus is the ultimate suffering servant. The passage is absolutely about him, but, but, as I said last week, there is a sense in which these passages are about all servants of God, even this one. Now, no, we don't atone for the sins of humanity, right? We can't do that because, look, we're all sinners, we're all sinners and so we are not able to be that, that spotless lamb. None of us can. That's only Jesus because he is God in the flesh. But think about happen, what happens when you choose to be a servant of God. Think about what when you dedicate your life to following Jesus, to, to modeling your life after his, to actually giving of yourself to healing this broken world. Think about what happens. For one thing, it means intentionally descending into the brokenness around us as a way of attempting to heal it. Look, when we we follow Jesus, we do not withdraw from the world and lock ourselves in a church building and just watch the world around us go to hell in a handbasket. No, that's not what we do. We dedicate ourselves to spreading hope and life and justice wherever we go. We don't just shout it with a bullhorn. We go into the world to spread it. We bring the light of Christ. We bring the gospel into dark places. That's the the whole point. That's the the whole point of what we're doing. But you know that if we do that, if we're going to rub shoulders with broken people, well, guess what? It is going to be painful at times. I talked last week about the the low-grade fever of sadness, right? Something, it's a phrase that my my dad used all the time. I think he may have coined it. You've experienced that low-grade fever of sadness if you have dedicated yourself to bringing light into dark places. For example, For example, uh, if you've ever loved someone who is deep in the throes of an addiction, you know what it's like to be weighed down by someone else's sorrows, don't you? You know what it's like to bear that. If you've tried spreading uh, hope or light in a dark place, well, then you likely know what it's like to be mocked or ignored or despised. You know what it's like to feel like just an, 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 an annoying little green sucker growing out of a tree. You know what it's like for people to look at you and scoff. And if you've tried to throw yourself onto the gears of injustice, if you've taken a stand against evil or against corruption or against exploitation, well, guess what? You know what it's like to be pierced and crushed and beaten by the dark forces of this world. You know it. As much as I wish that following Jesus was one just like happy, long victory march, we know that as long as this world is still broken, we're walking a path of self-denial, a path of of self-sacrifice. The low-grade fever of sadness is going to be with us. It is ours to bear. It's not an easy road. It's not. Jesus said it himself. He said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. Its gate is wide for the many who choose to go that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Following in the footsteps of Jesus is not easy. It's not easy. So what hope do we have? We just have to suffer? What hope do we have as the the servants of God? How can we we find hope if we think that the rest of this life is just going to be the low-grade fever of sadness? Well, let let me point you to the final words of Isaiah's fourth suffering servant song. Let's read this. Let's read this. Starting in verse 10. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and he interceded for rebels. Look at verse 11 one more time. Look at at verse 11. When he sees, when this servant sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied, satisfied. How could this be true? How can a servant of God, an unwanted green shoot, chewed up and spit out by the world, unjustly accused, giving his life for those who reject him, how can that servant be satisfied? How can you? How can you be satisfied? I just talked about how hard it is to follow Jesus, what it costs for us to try to to heal this broken world in his name. How will you ever be satisfied? Look, the Israelites who first heard these words, they were in an exile that was far from their home that lasted for a generation. No temple, no power, no hope. We are in the middle of a pandemic where everything is turned on its head. Our country is full of rage and confusion and the church is losing its voice. How can we be satisfied when it seems that serving God sometimes is like shouting into the wind, when it seems like so much of our work is futile? Well, I believe the answer. The answer comes in the line right before what I just read in verse 11. Look at verse 10. This is the key to this whole passage. The Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. The Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. From the very beginning of this series, the big idea has been simple God is still working right? The Lord has a plan. He is still working. This should be an encouragement for us in a difficult time, just as it was for the Israelites. But it's also a reminder. God is still working. We are not the ones who heal this world. It's not up to us. We are simply instruments of a God who's making all things new. We are his servants. I've said this before. God is playing four-dimensional chess here. His ways are beyond our ways. We didn't see that coming. God is healing the world and we don't always understand how. He's a God who takes humiliation and he turns it into victory. He takes sacrificial generosity and he turns it into overflowing abundance. He takes small acts of love and kindness and he uses them to shatter systems of injustice. Or to put it another way, he takes a young tender shoot, a sucker, and he grows it into a mighty tree. We don't know how God is going to use our feeble acts of love and justice and selflessness, selflessness to bring his plan to fruition. We don't know We don't know how he's going to multiply our obedience for generations to come. What we do know is this, the Lord's good plan will prosper in the hands of his servants if we are willing to pursue it without any reservation, no matter the cost. Why? Why will we be satisfied? Because the Lord's good plan will prosper and it's not us making it happen. It is Christ working through us. As the apostle Paul said, now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults and the hardships and the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Look, I don't know what you're feeling right now. As this pandemic continues to just grind on, as the recession that it's caused begins to bite, as our national discourse descends into chaos, how are you feeling? Lost? Confused? Apathetic? Hopeless? Angry? Whatever you feel, I hope Isaiah's words to the exiles will come as an encouragement to you. That if you dedicate yourself to God's purposes in this world, if you dedicate yourself to God's justice, if you pursue your God-given destiny in Jesus, well, then the Lord's good plan will prosper in your hands. Yes, you may suffer, but in the end, God's will will prevail and the world will be healed. You will be an instrument of the God of the universe as he makes all things new. God will heal this broken world through us. And at the end of the day, when we see how he has used us, I guarantee we will be satisfied.